Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Well, welcome back to Ausbiz, Australia's only live streaming business and finance channel. My name's Andrew Page, and it's great to have you join us for a special edition of The Call. We are talking all things ETF, exchange-traded funds today. And to help me do that, I'm joined by Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial. G'day, Michael. G'day, Happy New Year. It's Happy New back. Year. Just just back in the saddle recently? Yeah, the last week. So hopefully the mouth still still works. I and mean, I'm definitely refreshed, so ready to go for we're gonna, a We're going to throw you straight into the deep end, <laughs> right? So there's a trial by fire here. And uh, we're joined by Andrew Weiland. Uh, I've been Toowoomba from DP Wealth Advisory. Always good to chat. Andrew, how are you? G'day, Andrew. Seems like just last week that we were talking. It does feel like that, doesn't yeah. it? And uh, maybe because it was. Let's um, <laughs> let's get right into it. Now, we did an ETF special back in October of last year, and it was really, really, really popular. Um, and things have continued to get even more popular since then. In fact, Andrew, I might start with you here. Give us a bit of a flavor as to what's happened in the past few months in ETF land. Yeah, so it's continued to go off like a frog in a sock, Andrew. Uh, when we were talking with Koshi there back on the 28th of October, if I remember correctly, the uh, FUM, Funds Under Management, in the ETF space was about $71 billion, which is a fair sum of money. If we fast forward to today, that's now up to about $94 billion. Now, um, before we get too excited, $10 billion of that can be ascribed. Uh, Magellan uh, recently changed some of the structuring of its funds and so you can add about 10 billion dollars in for that but even if we add 10 billion back to that 71 uh we now find ourselves you know well in excess of that you know 15 percent growth over the, that last three months can, can and i ask really, you just on that sorry just to interrupt there is how much of a function of that is just what the markets have done versus how much we've had more money flow into these products Oh, I'd say it's probably more money flowing in than, and it's a good question because obviously that's what funds about, funds under management. But, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of interest as an example. If you just look month on month, just as an example, month on month, uh, we saw a four and a half percent increase just in Australian equities. And obviously, you know, because Australian shares are doing okay. So there's not only growth as we've seen, but more importantly, we're starting to see money moving into things like fixed interest. Uh, or bonds. We're seeing money moving into commodities, which is no great surprise given the run that we're seeing there at the moment, and also global as well. Interestingly, currency, maybe not given where the dollar is, currency has come off in a big way. Albeit currency, the fund was quite small, but the currency ETFs haven't fared too well on a funds under management basis, but certainly lots of money going into Australia, lots of money into fixed interest, lots of money into commodities. Do you notice, Andrew, much of a difference between sort of active versus passive, uh, or is it, or is it about the same? Yeah, I, I haven't sort of. There's 215 of them, Andrew, and as much as I'm passionate about them, I haven't drilled down into each it's a one. A lot to keep across. Yeah. Yeah. Get your act together. What are you doing? Um, <laughs> but 
I, uh, if, I, if I had to hazard a guess, I mean, certainly some of the actives, like one of the ones we're going to talk about today, ACDC, my little favourite, um, it's gone from, you know, like 32 million to 100 million in the space of six or nine months. So certainly some of these more active ones have done incredibly well. But again, this sort of weight of money that's starting to come through. I think last week in Australia, we had something like $250 million of net monies going into ETFs, which really sort of replicates or channels what we're seeing in Canada. Um, Canada is probably the closest proxy to us from a cultural point of view. And they're seeing regularly a uh, billion dollars a month of FUM, of new monies going in, because their market's very similar to ours. If you look at, you know, their an average Canadian portfolio, it would have uh, four banks, it would have uh, two retailers, and it'd have two commodity companies, which sort of sounds very similar to what we'd have here. And they're starting to have this big transition to ETFs, and we're probably two to three years behind them. So, Andrew, mm. at a guess, I'd say it's probably 50-50. Hey, Michael, um, before we get too far down the rabbit hole, if people are new to this space and they're going, WTF is an ETF, What's an ETF? <laughs> before we before we go too far here, well, basically it's a, a trust structure um, which gives clients access to a portfolio indirectly to a portfolio of different shares, different commodities, different bonds. So ETFs are, are very very broad these days in that they can be currency based, they can be stock market focused, they can be fixed income focused, commodity focused. So. It's really a broad instrument that gives clients or customers broad exposure to whatever indices or whatever commodity or index they're looking at. Sounds like a managed fund. Why, why wouldn't like, I just buy a managed fund? Well, a managed fund typically, um, a listed investment company or listed managed fund tends to be a closed end structure whereby there's a finite number of units um, and that's, that's it. With an ETF, they're open-end structures, you can keep adding more units over time, et cetera, as well. But typically, a managed funds, they tend to be um, either unlisted or listed, and they tend to be active in nature, whereas ETFs tend to be more passive in their exposures. At least that's how I understand it. Okay, anyway. yeah, that's cool. Hey, Andrew, would, I, would you add any um, distinction there? Michael just brought up LICs, listed investment companies, which are also have their, um, have their advocates as well. How would... How, if you were making the case for ETFs over an LIC, what would you say? Oh, look, LICs have been around forever and they certainly can form a part of people's portfolios. Um, you know, I've been doing this 24 years, hard to believe looking at me. But uh, when I first started, uh, LICs were the go. Things like Argo, things like the Gero, of course, the old Widows and Orphans Fund AFI. And there's certainly nothing wrong with those at all. But if you have a look at them, they're all what we call actively managed. So in other words, they're not necessarily trying to replicate a benchmark at some guys and girls with a methodology or a feeling or a hot tip or whatever the case may be. And if you sort of have a look at that research done by Standard & Poor's, that Spiva report, which I'm sure everyone's sick of me quoting by now, but it's really important because what Spiva tells us is that there's an 82% if you're an active manager over 10 years that you will fail to meet, not beat, fail to meet the benchmark. So in other words, if I'm an investor, I've got to be really confident that if I'm using an active manager, be it an LIC or a managed fund, that they're going to be in the 18% that are going to beat the market, uh, as opposed to the 82%, which unfortunately uh, won't be able to do so. So LICs have their place, 
But over time, and I think Michael's absolutely nailed it with that open versus closed-ended and that discount to um, net, net asset backing, that NTA, where, again, I'll just pick on DeGero. DeGero for many years, DJW used to trade at a 10 15 20% premium to NTA. Hmm. Now you've got these ETFs that trade at NAV, they trade at asset backing. And that's really, you're seeing a lot of LICs, I'm sure Michael would agree, you're seeing a lot of LICs now trading at a discount to asset backing and trying to figure out how they're going to fix that. And I don't think there's any easy answer. There's um, also an interesting point in there, um, active versus passive, Michael. One of the other things that will distinguish them is the fee structure because it takes Mm -hmm. effort and time and a lot of brain power to come up with what you're going to buy. And so when you're copying an index, it's pretty easy, right? You just, whatever the index does, you do. So therefore ETFs do tend to be cheaper. And, And in quoting that really abhorrent, stat that Andrew did before with you know a minority of uh, active managers outperforming the market it's usually because of fees is that something else to think about yeah absolutely um, I think you've got to look active versus passive gets a, a there's a big argument going on these days and, and often the the sales reps working for these ETFs have done a wonderful job in framing how poorly active managers have done but I think that's symptomatic of the way the industry was and has evolved over time. I mean, once upon a time, you've got the big names and you know who they are, you know, the AMPs, Colonials, Perpetuals, these people of the world going back 20, 30 years ago who would claim to be an active fund manager charging active fees. But in reality, we're really just mirroring the index, sort of 80, 90% of that index. Index and hugging. Have index hugging with maybe one mm. or two overweight positions here and there. So they were really... They were really um, passive funds masquerading as active funds. And I think over time that started to be called out yeah. and you started to see fees start to compress over time. Um, also looking at the data when looking at active and passive funds, it takes it, look, when you look at sort of how a lot of this work is done from time to time, it, it assumes that any active manager that's no longer in existence has underperformed over time. And often that's not the case. Often they've been merged into another fund, being bought out, etc. But Definitely looking at the numbers, it's not a pretty sight for active managers, but potentially it's not as bad as everyone makes it seem. You've got to remember that ETFs, although they're mirroring an index, they'll by definition underperform over 10, 20 years um, because they're charging half a percent or 0.25%. So it might be a small fair, underperformance, the, that's but right. it's, it's guaranteed. The fair a, comparison yeah. really then is to not measure active funds versus the index, but active funds versus ETFs. And I think okay. you'll get a different picture again. So that's just my little two cents worth there for active versus passive, but definitely passive has done an incredible job. It's here to stay um, and it gives people exposures to areas of the market that they wouldn't otherwise normally get. Uh, at a very cost-effective way. Um, The whole thing with ETFs versus LICs as well is because one's a trust structure, one's a company structure, there are tax implications to consider as well. Yes. Um, You have to understand that a trust is forced to distribute all their income, whereas a company can retain earnings, they can distribute franking credits, those sorts of things. So then they're also forced to distribute the tax obligation. That's too. right. Yes, that's right. So that's something you want to consider as well yeah. before making a decision. That's essentially what Magellan's done recently. They basically split up one of their big funds to keep the company structure, but then also introduce now this trust structure, which again gives people the option for a very similar exposure. Just how you want to recognise that tax. So that's something for people to consider and, and maybe consult a, a financial planner, of which I'm not. <laughs> so. That's always something to, to take into account. But yeah, ETFs, and we'll go through a lot of good quality ones today, are definitely evolving and going down the path that we've seen in Europe and the US 
giving us a lot more access to other countries, other geographical regions and parts of the market we normally wouldn't get, such as fixed income or commodities. Yeah, um, interesting points there. And well worth, I'll reiterate the point that you made, uh, you know, consider this in light of your own financial circumstances. It's one of those lines that you throw us, you know, aside, but it's really important and it's there for a reason. So make sure you do that. But uh, you're right, Michael, we've got a whole bunch of interesting ETFs to get through today. These have all been sent in by you, our viewers. Jenna has done exactly that. Andrew, I'll start with you. Jenna wants to know about the Robo Global Robotics and Automation ETF. And uh, one thing I love about ETFs is they've got awesome codes. This one is Robo, which of course it does. Um, pretty exciting space. Is it an ETF that you'd buy into? Yeah, Andrew, this is sort of my dream job to be sort of working for the ASX and just helping come up with these uh, code names. If I could do that, I'd be the happiest person in the world. Very happy. Um, Yes, indeed, I have a very quiet life. Um, look, I, uh, I don't mind the thematic, and I think it's important, and certainly how I'll answer each one of these questions is whether I think these are core or satellites. So what I mean by that is, are these holdings that you would hold in your portfolio forever, because they're core holdings, or are they more satellite exposure? In other words, you sort of think to yourself, well, it's an interesting thematic, it's an interesting theme, but do I think that this, um, focus or specialization is something that I should be looking at over the long term. So I'd sort of class this first one as a satellite. And the way we construct our portfolios is two thirds core, one third satellite. Um, so in the context of robotics and AI, then obviously it is, you know, a thematic that I, I don't think anyone for a moment doesn't think that there won't be autonomous vehicles. You obviously see drones. When you go to Woolies, you know, there's someone, there's no longer sort of someone there at the checkout. It's actually, you have to go and sort of pack your own bags, that sort of thing. So if you have a look at this one, and there's another one that's listed, which we'll talk about in a second, called RBTZ. This one, Robo by ETF Securities, 87 companies. Uh, it's what we call equal weight. So in other words, each one of the companies in the uh, index have a certain percentage, about one point something percent. So you don't have an overweight percentage of one versus the other. And there's a lot of research that suggests that equal weight helps deliver better risk adjusted returns. Um, so something equal weight, something to think about. The portfolio itself is to split into sort of 40 percent of companies that make all their money just from automation and robotics and 60 percent where it's a portion thereof. It's actually performed pretty well. Uh, if you look at its performance, it's up about 30% per annum uh, over the last two years. Um, and wow, you're getting, and, and Michael touched on that very briefly before, you're getting, one of the benefits of ETFs is you're getting that uh, geographic diversification. So it's 46% Japan, uh, sorry, 46% US, 80%, 18% Japan, 7% Germany, 7% Taiwan. Because as much as I love Australia, we're doing a pretty poor job in this particular space. So it's hard to sort of find individual companies that will do that for you. Me personally, I prefer RBTZ, which is the, the BetaShares product. Um, it's actually got better performance. It's up about 34%. It's got a lower MER, lower management expense ratio, about 0.47 relative to 0.69. And there's another thing, so for the finance nerds out there, called the Sharp Ratio. So sort of basically what type of return are you getting relative to the amount of risk that you're taking? Any number above one is good. And in the case of RBTZ, the sharp ratio is over two. So me personally, like the thematic, nothing wrong with Robo. Robo is a good story. I prefer RBTZ. Can I just drill down into something there, Andrea, for a second? With these equal weight uh, ETFs, 
how often do they do this rebalancing? Because obviously every day those weightings get knocked out a little bit just because of the underlying share price movements. Can you be, is there a consideration that if it's traded or reweighted too often, that there's going to be extra brokerage costs for the provider and therefore added costs for the holder? Or am I oversimplifying things there? You're overthinking it, Andrews. Usually, I am, no, right? it's yeah. uh, <laughs> so it's 0.47 is the MER, and again, Michael okay. just touched on something before relating to the costs of these types of products. You have to think about. We'll talk about one in a minute. That's MER is about 0.1 something. So I wouldn't be so much worried at the brokerage. The reweighting piece is an interesting one. I haven't checked as to what it is with Robo. I suspect, as with most indexes, it's about every 90 days. Okay. But again, it's not a it's not a massive change. But you're right; that's something. It can be a drag on performance if there is constant reweighting. But I don't believe that's the case in this instance. Yeah, there's some interesting research there. But I mean, you think by definition, like all the ones that are not doing that well, you're always putting more money into it. And the ones that are doing the underlying stocks that are doing well, you're always selling out of it. So it, it you can you can argue it in many different ways. Um, Michael, what do you reckon here? I think with um, some of these themed ETFs, particularly in a space where it might be biotechnology or uh, high technology, robotics, history would tend to suggest that these are undeniably going to be huge parts of the economy in the future, but 95% of players in that space are going to do nothing for you. This is the real advantage of an ETF, right? So you, yeah. you, 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 you know, the, the, you're almost guaranteed to capture whatever one it is that's going to shoot the lights out. In this case, no, because it's equal weighted, right? So over time, um, this thematic definitely makes sense. And you're going to have a very tough time in picking which of those businesses are going to be the winners. Just like if you went back to the dot-com boom, uh, we knew the internet was going to be huge. We knew there was going to be e-commerce and all these different things, but we just didn't know which companies were going to come out on top. If this ETF was index weighted as your Amazons and your Facebooks and your Googles got bigger, then they would become bigger, bigger percentage of the of this index and the bigger percentage of the ETF. With an equal weighted ETF, you're effectively keep capping your, your winners and then you're going to keep supporting your losers. So I like the general thematic of that ETF. Uh, I just don't like the fact that it's equal weighted because I think what you'll end up finding is those companies that start to emerge as the leaders in that space will in by default or, or by the, the way that the mandate's set up, will start to be cut, um, cut early, and, and you'll end up just nullifying much of that upswing. So I, I, I like the idea um, of this, this general area. I like the idea of this ETF. I just don't agree with the weighting structure of it. Okay. And Andrew's definitely pointed out um, another alternative out there, which might be something worth looking at. But right. I think we can all agree that artificial intelligence, robotics is here to stay. Um, and it's very difficult to know which winners are going to be. So it makes sense to start looking at ETFs in this area to gain that exposure. I know we're off to a slow start here, viewers, but we're laying the groundwork here. Some <laughs> concepts and things we're discussing here, which will be relevant to the other ETFs. Um, Michael, I'm going to give you first crack at this because yep. I know Andrew knows this next one very, very, very well. So I'll give you a chance to, to add your two cents in first. Uh, ACDC, he's already mentioned it. This is the uh, ETF securities, battery tech, lithium play. Simon wants to know, uh, should he should he buy it? It's done pretty well. Yeah, look, I mean, this again, like the previous ETF, Robo, this is a great thematic. We, we all agree, I think, that electric vehicles are going to be here to stay. We've seen today, I think, some news out of China suggesting that they're going to really focus their attention going forward on electric vehicles. 
which will in many ways call the end of the combustion engine at some point, whether that's in 10 years or 50 years, who knows at this point. But um, this particular ETF is actively managed. There are some uh, familiar names at the top of the holdings chart there. So things like Galaxy Resources, Pilbara Minerals, and then a lot of others from around the world as well. So um, if you are uh, looking to get exposure to the electric vehicle theme and the lithium space, then I think this is a, a very good way to go about it. Um, we actually have clients in Galaxy uh, as a fairly recent pickup, which has been doing incredibly well. Yep. Um, and that space seems to be benefiting from the reflation trade that we're seeing going on at the moment with the whole suite of commodities. So from mine, uh, this is a, a buy if you're looking for that electric vehicle lithium exposure. Okay, great. There's our first buy for the day. Now, Andrew, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess it's going to be a buy from you. But I also have to say congratulations because you've been talking about this before uh, almost anyone else that I've heard of and you've done very well as a result. But still more upside, do you think? Giddy up. Giddy up. Giddy up. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um, yeah, look, every, everything that Michael said, um, bearing in mind, it's also got Tesla, it's got Renault. Um, I, I mean, you just look at the volatility that we've seen in Vulcan, if you remember, Andrew, that's one that we did last week with yeah. Henry. And uh, Vulcan yesterday, you know, like 40% wow. in an hour. Um, it's certainly a hot sector, but with that comes a lot of the volatility. And, and you're right, this has done pretty well, but this will help smooth out that volatility, but you still get exposure to that thematic. So, no, still very comfortable buying this one. Um, it's not core, it's a satellite, but like it a lot. If you remember, we spoke about that sharp ratio, sharp of a 1.9. Mm. So, again, you're getting excess return for, sure, you're taking on some risk, but not, you know, in, enormous risk. So, yep, do like this one, it's a buy. All right, Andrew, I'll stay with you. Let's talk uh, BetaShares, one of their ETFs. Shane wants to know about the S&P ASX Australian Technology uh, ETF. The code there for those at home is ATEC. Is this, uh, is this a nice way to get exposure to Aussie tech? It is, but you've got to bear in mind that, uh, what's the percentage? It's 24% afterpay. Now, that's been great, Whoa. you know. <laughs> Um, if, if you like afterpay, but you're just a bit worried about having exposure to it on its own, if you look at the top five holdings in this ETF, it's afterpay, zero, seek, realestate.com and computer share. Mm. So to me, that's a, it's, that's a good basket and I quite like zero. It's in fact one of my holdings of my own super fund as is REA. So, but I guess their timing and bringing this out pretty much almost picked the, uh, the worst possible time for it to list. It was back in March when the whole world was going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, it's now up about 33% uh, over the last six months. MER is not too bad at about 48 basis points. So again, if you're looking to play Aussie tech, uh, this probably isn't a bad way to play it, but the big caveat being that uh, you've got to love Afterpay and you know wherever Afterpay is at the moment, having a quarter of your money in there probably would just be a little bit of an amber light for me. So I'm a hold purely on that basis. Yeah, no, good point. So Michael, what do you think? I think Andrew is spot on. I think part of the attraction of ETFs is you avoid that concentration risk. Um, and this ETF doesn't do that 20% or more in afterpay, 30% in zero. I really like zero. I've got that for a lot of clients and done well very done. well off that. But it's not cheap at the moment. Afterpay is at $140, I think today. It's only on a price to sales of 80 though. <laughs> exactly. So you have to understand, <laughs> this is the thing with ETFs. You need to really look into the underlying holdings and yep. see what you are exposed to because ultimately you are exposed to the fluctuations of different shares and different businesses and if a particular business makes up an enormous amount of that ETF then you're very exposed to that particular company so 
if we're going to do a, a tech ETF, I'd look for something more broad and probably internationally focused as well. You've also got to take into account that growth stocks, you know, the last three, four, five years, even 10 years have really done extremely well relative to value stocks. And there's an argument to suggest that as we come out of a recession globally, as bond yields at the longer end of the curve start to pick up, uh, growth might finally start to struggle a little bit relative to value. And in that case, you can expect maybe tech to not be the shining light that it's been in recent times. I'm not mm -hmm. suggesting these companies are bad. Yep. You know, great businesses like Seek, REA, all included in that next DC, all in this ETF. But just be cognizant of some of the broader dynamics that are out there too. Valuation matters. Yeah, that's right. Do you know, I was reading something recently with the, the tech boom. So Microsoft is one of those companies that was around in the late 90s, still around today. Yeah. Business has gone phenomenally well. It took 15 years to get back to those 2000 yeah, highs. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, so, and, 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 and earnings grew, I think, I want to say sales grew something like 4x or 6x over that period. So it wasn't as though, it wasn't as though the business didn't yeah. perform well. But you, you can absolutely do really badly in uh, a yeah, good company I'd, if you pay too much. I'd love to see the average PE on that ASX uh, tech ETF it would be astronomical and hard to digest. You, it would definitely be up there. Um, Andrew, uh, Michael was mentioning just a moment ago some international exposure. Well, it just so happens Malcolm's written in about a Vanguard ETF, the MSCI index, which tracks international shares. The code there is VGAD, V-G-A-D, uh, is that one you'd consider? Yeah, sorry, I was just trying to quickly see whether I could find that average P in there. I've got about every other statistic, but not that one, sorry, Michael. Um, look, I, uh, I quite like VGAD. It's indeed a core holding in our portfolio, uh, or ETF portfolios. Important to note, Andrew, that it's hedged. So its uh, cousin is VGS, which is the unhedged version. So this is one that you would buy. It owns the top 1,543 companies in the world, ex-Australia. So in one trade, you're getting exposed to the developed world and you're paying 21 basis points as an MER, a, a, a 0.21 of 1%. All the other ones that we've just been talking about are 0 0.5, 0 0.6, 0.7. 20 basis points, 1,500 companies, one trade, and the currency hedging's looked after for you. So that's why it's a core holding in our portfolio. It's about $1.3 billion funds under management, and it's up about 9% per annum for the last three years, which is certainly better than a poke in the eye. Yep. If we compare it to VGS, the unhedged version, it's up 11% per annum over the last three years. So really, when you're buying this one, what you've got to say to yourself is, do I want to try and uh, guess where the A is going? And if I do, well, I actually probably want VGS. But if I just don't want that hassle, I just want exposure to the developed world in one trade at 21 bips, then certainly VGAD is one, so it's a buy. Michael, what do you reckon? This is actually one we do have for, for clients because it's a plain vanilla, sort of traditional old school ETF, if you like, sort of pioneered by Vanguard back in the day that just gives you that broad international exposure for a very, very low cost. Um, it's not going to do amazing things because it is very, very diversified. Uh, I think there's over 1,500 different shares in that. Um, so it, look, it's going to do, you know, what the broader market does, um, and it's going to, over time, history suggests that's going to be roughly eight to 12 percent over time. That so, seems really 
ordinary yeah. in context of recent um, experience. Yeah. However, the nature of compounding uh, is right. such that that is actually, if you can maintain that eight to 12% over an extended period, it's uh, pretty good. That's right. And that, that's the thing. So this is a pure passive in the true sense of the word, which you just bottom draw it and leave it for 10, 20 years. And then hopefully over time it compounds, as you say. So that's the way that we see it. It's not like we hold this for every single client, but for those clients that just want some overseas exposure um, and want an easy way to go about getting it, this is it. Okay. Hey, let me very quick segue here. One of the questions that comes up uh, a little bit, I should have raised this before, people will say, do I actually own the shares if I've got an ETF? What if State Street goes bankrupt? What if Vanguard, these are unlikely scenarios by the way, but what if Vanguard goes bankrupt? Am I stuffed? Well, you don't own the shares per se, you own a unit in a trust that owns the shares. And in the event that these companies went belly up, you would imagine that the trusts get liquidated and then, the, then the, the money from the trust then gets distributed to the unit holders. So there's not a counterparty so, risk per se. I, look, I, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, once you start getting to the more creative um, ETFs, and we might touch on a couple in a minute, then you might find things a bit more complex. Um, but that's something that's probably untested at this stage. And this is something that we, people need to be conscious and wary of, that when these firms do go belly up, if they all go belly up at the same time, how is that all looked at? But maybe Andrew can shed some yeah, more light on Yeah, any quick thoughts on that, Andrew? Uh, I'd simply say they're physically backed. Well, sorry, yeah. let me try that again. If they're physically backed, ah. then, and let's, again, we'll just pick on VGI, we'll pick on STW, because you just mentioned State Street. So that's the oldest um, ETF in the country. It's about $6 billion, and it just literally holds the ASX S&P 200. I mean, things have gone real bad if you've done every single dollar on that, because if it's physically backed, then surely you're going to get the money back from that point of view. So, no, there's, there is no issues at all. If it's commodity backed or, uh, you know, futures backed, uh, that's a whole other world of pain, mm-hmm. but uh, or potential pain. But certainly in the context of security and so forth, I've got no issues. And I mean, you think about stress tests that we've gone through. We've gone through GFC 2008. We've just gone through a pandemic, uh, and yet we've actually seen an inflow and an increase in funds under management. You know, people were using bond ETFs for price discovery because the underlying bond market wasn't working properly <laughs> in that high yield space. So I, I would have no concerns at all. Yeah, I, I didn't want to get anyone worried, but I just thought it was an important point to uh, to make there. Uh, this is the, uh, the, la- the final one for the first half of the show. Andrew, what do you think about the iShares Global Healthcare ETF? Jacob wants to know, the code is IXJ. Healthcare, another really sexy space. Yeah, it's probably not the term I'd use to describe it, but yes, it's certainly uh, one of interest. Attractive. Uh, 47, attractive, <laughs> thank you, Andrew. It is a family-friendly show. Uh, hi, Mum. It's a 47 basis point MER. So again, it's it's sort of up there. I mean, the reason I'm saying this is if you look at, and the US is the US, but, you know, the average MER, MER there's probably something in the 10 to 15 basis points range. Our market is still quite immature. It's growing. But uh, I suspect if we were to do this when we do this in 12 months' time for ETF 6.0, then you'll find that the MERs are coming down. So 47 basis points is cheap, but it's not. Uh, It's unhedged. You're getting exposure to healthcare companies in the US, Switzerland, Japan, UK, Denmark. As the name suggests, it focuses on the S&P 
global healthcare sector. And it's got companies like Johnson & Johnson, Novaris, Pfizer, Roche. So it's sort of ticking all the boxes. Uh, healthcare is a defensive space. Uh, and you would think with an aging population in the developed world and all those countries I just read out of the developed world countries, then there's going to be a heightened need for services. So it's certainly one in which you would expect that there's going to be continued growth. It's about $800 million of, of fund under management. Again, it's not, um, it certainly isn't a core holding in our portfolios. If we were to do it, it might be a satellite. For me, it's okay, but certainly nothing that we're getting too excited about. We think there's probably other mega trends like your batteries and your robotics and your esports, etc., that offer better growth potential. This would just be a solid plotting, do the business type of thing. Yeah, interesting points. Uh, do you agree, Michael? I tend to agree uh, with most of that. Um, I think it's probably more diversified than an Australian healthcare ETF, given the concentration, things like CSL and whatnot. But healthcare in general uh, can be split into different subsectors, if you like. You've got healthcare products, healthcare services, you've got the biotech space. And I think you could almost then pick off which of those spaces you want to target most. And I think you'll be able to find ETFs that can give you that exposure as well. And I think with healthcare, um, you can almost pick out the businesses directly that you want exposure to, uh, particularly here in Australia, if you wanted to go down that path. Okay, so it's a pass. Pass for me on that one. Well, let's do a quick recap of the first five. Uh, we started off with the ETFS Robo uh, Global Robotics Automation. Look, a really interesting space. Both of the experts really like this space. They do, however, lean more towards the RBTZ ETF, uh, which has a, uh, a, uh, a, better, um, a better fee structure, I believe. Uh, and so for that reason, it was a pass. We then talked about uh, the ACDC, a very popular one on the show. I should mention, this is in our portfolio for the call. And given that both Michael and Andrew gave it a thumbs up, it's gonna stay there. Um, you're welcome. Uh, let's go to the beta shares, S&P ASX 200 Australian Technology ETF. Uh, listen, this is one that has performed exceptionally well. There's, there's some really great companies in there, but it was a thumbs down from both Michael and Andrew on the basis of some pretty lofty valuations in there and some pretty heavily concentrated players at the top end. Uh, the guy's pointing out that Afterpay is 24%. Let's call it a quarter of this ETF is in, is in one red hot stock. So for that reason, uh, they were leaning more towards something a bit broader, maybe something with a bit of international exposure, if you like the tech thematic. We then talked about something that was a little bit more boring, but as we often say on the show, boring can be beautiful. The international shares are hedged ETF from Vanguard, which follows the MSCI index, super, super broad, uh, like never going to shoot the lights out, but by the same token, likely to give you the long-term market average, which tends to be pretty good, nearing that uh, 8 to 12% range. So uh, these guys both like it calling it a core holding. And then we finished off with the global healthcare ETF. It was two thumbs down there. Uh, I think the main reason being just better thematics, better sectors, if you wanted to focus on that. And Michael basically saying you could just pick some direct shares if, if you wanted some exposure to that space. So I mentioned the uh, portfolio that we run here at the core, the call, I should say. Let's have a quick look at how that has performed. now. 99% of the time we're talking stocks here and by far and away stocks are what is in that portfolio and you can see it's performed 
really nicely. In fact, after yesterday, we're actually seeing green across the board. We've tipped above that 25% mark for the first time. You can uh, have a look at all of the movements by going to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. But we do have ETFs in there. As I mentioned before, one of them is uh, ACDC. After today, in fact, the MSCI uh, index uh, is going to be added to that as well. That's VGAD, given that we had two uh, thumbs up. Here's some of the other ETFs that we have added uh, recently. Uh, there's a lot of words on that screen, so I'm not going to read them all out, but uh, I'm sure you're all capable of having a read. And as I said, you can also go to the website and check that out in more detail. Let's get to the second half of the show. Andrew, I'm going to start with you first. This one was sent in by Lachlan, who's uh, obviously a bit keen on banks, global banks in particular. He's asked about the BetaShares Global Banks ETF. Uh, this is currency hedged. Another nice code here, BNKS. Andrew, do you like it? I do. I do. I think that uh, banks seem to have turned the corner. As you know, I've been a bit of a bank bear, but uh, certainly in particular with um, global bond yields on the rise, that's certainly good for banks. And uh, we're seeing some of the earnings coming out, excuse me, seeing some of the earnings coming out uh, overnight from Goldman Sachs and uh, previously from JP Morgan, etc. that uh, they're sort of uh, making a fair bit of money at the moment, um, especially those with investment banks. So uh, quite like this space. Um, it's down 20% for the year, unsurprisingly, but it's up 18% for the last six months. MERs, you know, 0.5, 0.6. It's got companies like uh, Bank of America, City, Wells Fargo, uh, Royal Bank of Canada, China Construction Bank, it's about 31% US, 18% Canada, 8% China. So as a broader thematic, so, you know, for the traders out there, if you think that long-term interest rates are going to keep on increasing, uh, and that it will sort of the vaccine will not necessarily fix things, but sort of help the reinflation trade, etc. And certainly this is probably one way in which to play it. Uh, what do you think, Michael? Look, I think um, if you believe that we're going to go through one of these cyclical um, boom periods after a recession, I think the banks are in a pretty good position globally to benefit from that. You have to understand that global banks are very different structures than Australian banks. In Australia, 60, 70 percent of bank revenues and earnings come from mortgages. Um, overseas, it's closer to 20, 30%. So many of these international banks um, are exposed to the business cycle. And if we do get this vaccine and we do get an end to COVID and we start to see the global economy roaring ahead, you would expect that businesses will do well and these business banks and investment banks will do kind of well too. So I think it's not a bad exposure at all to give you exposure to what is a value area of the market relative to some of these more high growth areas such as tech and healthcare that have dominated in recent years. So it's a buy? Yeah, I don't have anyone in it, but I might as well give yeah. it a, a cyclical buy. We do own some Australian banks at the moment and yeah. have for the last sort of three, four months and done very well off that. And I expect that there's similar thematics playing out overseas. Okay, um, I'll repeat something that I say often on the show, which is that context matters here. Yeah. You know, we sort of, we, we reduce everything to buy, sell or hold, but yeah. there are different flavors <laughs> of buy. And Michael has given you some uh, some pretty important context there. Michael, I'm gonna stay with you. Uh, Sam wants to know about the BetaShares Global Energy Companies ETF, another one that is currency hedged. Um, so I'm gonna guess here, this is oil producers and the yeah. like. Do you like it? I do. Again, it's that thematic um, that, you know, the global economy is in recovery mode and you expect energy to pick itself up off on the floor. Um, energy has been under a lot of pressure for a long time 
Um, and as the broader markets recovered, energy really hasn't seen the same sort of recovery that many of its sector cousins have seen. So for the first time in a long time, we've moved into some energy companies, things like Santos, Oil Search. That's obviously not in this ETF because this is a, an international energy exposure. But there's going to be similar thematics playing out, I think, around the world. And if you want exposure to things like ExxonMobil, which once upon a time was the biggest company in the world, uh, these days energy in the US is only a very small sector. Um, the valuation differential between energy and some of the, the bigger, higher performing sectors is the wise it's ever been. So if the energy price or the oil price can hold up and continue to recover, then you would expect many of these names to perform quite well. My temptation still would be to look for direct equities within the energy space um, because not all energy companies are the same. Um, some are more mature, have longer life assets, some have better quality reserves. So there's all these different things you need to take into account. Um, so I, my preference would be for direct equities, but I think it can do worse than getting broad exposure to the energy ETF. I know it's an ETF special, it's, but you've tempted me. Yeah. Can, can you give me a name in the energy space on the ASX? On the ASX, we don't mind Santos. Santos? Um, basically, they've done a lot of balance sheet repair over the last five years. Once upon a time, they were saddled with US dollar denominated debt. They've managed to get that yeah. down significantly. Their production costs have come down a lot. And one of the criticisms of Santos for a while was that they had no exploration assets. Well, they've got some of the best quality LNG assets now as well. And they're looking to even bring forward some of the exploration or on some of that, or some of the production okay. maybe even on some of that too. So Santos, um, I think, is probably our preferred pick in that space. Nice. Well, thank you. A little, little bonus yeah. pick there for, <laughs> for the viewers at home. Andrew, what do you think about uh, the BetaShares Global Energy Companies ETF? Yep, and then I'll give you an ASX one just, you know, so you get two for one. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, that's why I'm on the big dollars. Uh, we <laughs> quite like this one. Uh, this oh, cool. is probably my second favourite. We've been picking this up since about 3, 3.20. So uh, it's uh, not as good as ACDC, but it's still going along pretty well. Um, that's going to come back and haunt me one day, I'm sure. Um, it's, again, the MER is not too bad, 0.5, 0.6. You really are, as Michael's saying, working on that recovery play or the reopening trade. It's oil and gas, it's storage, it's transportation, it's exploration, it's refining. So you've got that whole spread in the oil and gas world. You're exposed to the US, Canada, the Netherlands, France, China. So you're getting that broad geographic diversification. Probably the only thing, Andrew, and I know people are probably a bit sick of me mentioning this, but... It, it is becoming more and more important in the conversations. It's, it's around this whole ESG play um, and what sort of, um, from, a, from an ethical, social and governance perspective, does this play part in your portfolio and do ESG considerations play in that? Because obviously when we're dealing with fossil fuels, we're seeing more and more uh, companies and fund managers actually stepping away from that. So that's certainly something to be bearing in mind. I mean, if you look at the fact that the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which basically built its, what, $1.4 trillion value on fossil fuels now trying to back out of it, that in itself sort of, I think, sends you a pretty strong message. So I'm a buy, but, you know, if ESG is important to you, as it should be, then that's certainly something you need to be thinking about. Oh, Andrew, you are you are tempting me so much to go down another rabbit hole, but we simply don't have time because there's some fascinating points you raised there. Um, but we won't we won't go there today. Let's instead go to 
an ETF that's really focused on yield. Um, the BetaShares S&P 500 Yield Maximizer, UMAX is the code. Kevin wants to know, this is interesting because they do some clever stuff, well, hopefully clever stuff with options to boost what are pretty ordinary dividend yields in the US. And Sorry, that's for you, Andrew. Sorry, Andrew, yes. <laughs> that would help. Bueller, Sorry. Bueller, Bueller. Um, yeah, look, <laughs> I um, I have to say out of all the ones today, this is probably my least favourite. Mm -hmm. um, the yield is attractive, as you're saying, it's about 7%. And if you compare and contrast that to the US market, what's the average yield there? About 1, 1.5%? Yeah, about that. Sorry, just back on, back on VGID very briefly, there is a, a nexus between the two, no dividend. So if you're mm. buying VGID, there is no dividend at all. Still a buy, but it's just something you need to bear in mind. Okay. Whereas this one, 7% yield, but how they're doing it, they're using an option strategy, they're using a covered call strategy, which is a pretty vanilla type of strategy. But if you look at the performance of the index, because it's basically a covered call strategy over the S&P 500. So the index itself has returned 14% per annum over the, uh, sorry, 13% per annum over the last five years. This strategy, has delivered total return of 7% per annum over the last five years. So, you know, you're talking before about uh, the, the equal weight and how that's potentially a problem around how you're sort of uh, capping your winners and, you know, bolstering your losers and all that sort of stuff. Indirectly, that's potentially what you're doing here as well by with this covered call strategy where you're putting a cap on all the prices, you keep on getting taken out which is great from a, a yield perspective that you're sort of really putting a cap on your gains. Mm. So certainly not one for me um, because I'm more in the total return camp. You know, I'm certainly more in the view that return should be made up of both growth and income. Whereas if you're just solely income focused, this is okay. But as you can see, you're putting a real handbrake on that total return ability that you've got. Yeah, it's a bit hard to, to only look at just one aspect there, isn't it, Michael? I mean, it's it's all good and well if you get a fantastic yield, but your capital base halves. Yeah, so well, that's... You, you've got to look at the... I mean, Andrew makes a pretty good point there, but hey, is this an ETF you'd consider? No, um, it's like the harvester one in Australia. Ideologically, I have an issue with capping your upside in the share market. And that's what you're doing with a covered call strategy or basically buying a share or an equity or an index, and then you're writing a call option or selling a call option which effectively gives you a premium, which gives you a nice little shot in the arm of income in the short term. But if the market does what it's hopefully going to do and what it's meant to do and goes up, then you're just sacrificing on cutting off all that upside for yourself. Um, I can see why people do it, particularly sort of self-managed super funds who need income. But over a five-year period, if you've doubled your money just in the S&P 500 basic index mm. um, and you've halved your return by having this covered call strategy, well, you're 50% worse off. Um, so you can manufacture your own dividend over time. You can sell a little bit of your portfolio if you really need the income so badly. So that's my, my view on, on this particular position. But it does go to the fact that not all ETFs are the same, just like not all active managers are the same. Some active managers might be compared to the index, but what's their actual mandate? What are they actually targeting? Some are targeting growth, some are targeting yield. Mm. Um, so, so you've got to always take that into account and understand what they're actually trying to do. I'm sure this ETF is doing a very good job at what it's saying it's going to do. And it is, it's getting five, six, seven percent dividends and distributions. That's very good and that's what people want. But there's a lot of other things you've got to take into account. And you would have been far, far better off twice, basically twice 
as better off just holding the S&P 500 ETF than using this particular instrument over the long term. Yeah, interesting, excellent points there, gents. Michael, I'm gonna stay with you. We're really covering every single nook and cranny of financial markets here today. Uh, Tim's written in about the Dow Jones Global Real Estate uh, ETF. The code there is DJRE. Uh, this one is done by State Street. Uh, what do you think? I must admit, I haven't seen this one, but again, it just seems like a pretty um, generic, broad ETF that gives you exposure to global property. And, and that's not necessarily the worst thing at all. But I think with a little bit of research and due diligence, you can probably pick up on which regions and, and which cities or, or which countries property markets gonna do better than others. Just Sydney and Melbourne units, right? Well, that's <laughs> just back up the truck. Surely. That, 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 that's what history would suggest, or at least recent <laughs> history. But um, so look, I, I'm not gonna say this is a terrible idea because it does give you that broad exposure. But I think with these ones, often you can look at unlisted um, managed funds um, and you can look at more niche global property uh, to try and get exposure to those markets that are booming or more likely to boom yeah. rather than just getting lumped in with everything. Andrew, what do you, what do you reckon? Does uh, property float your boat? It's part of our model portfolio. So it's a core relating to the diversification piece. We do like the fact that it's about 31% industrial and you know it's got your commercial, et cetera. Um, but if you look at the five-year return, the five-year total return is 0.68 of 1%. So it's certainly nothing to write home about by any stretch of the imagination. So I have to say yes, because it's part of our core holding and diversification. But if I'm an active ETF uh, participant and I'm looking for opportunity, um, yeah, look, I'm, I think I'm a pass. There's nothing wrong with it, but yeah, it's not super exciting either. So pass for the active crew. Okay, fair enough. Hey, so we've got to the last one. And this is a really interesting one, Andrew. Um, Karim has sent this one in. It's the Vanguard FTSE Asia excluding Japan shares index ETF. Man, these names really um, test you, don't they? But before we get into this specific one, you do see these ones a bit, don't they? You don't you? Where you sort of see, hey, a particular index or a particular theme except for, and they'll chop something out of it. So I guess if you were after some Asian exposure, what's the argument for, for chopping Japan outside of that? Well, really, Andrew, this by doing that, what they've in essence done is turned it almost into an emerging um, countries um, uh, ETF. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, the premise being, and I'm sure a lot of people won't accept this, but that China is actually still considered to be an emerging country. Right. So you've got to have that, you've got to have that logical leap. But, you know, it's China, Korea, Korea obviously isn't, Taiwan and India are the main ones. But it's a very heavy bias. It's about 74% of this ETF is emerging markets. So mm -hmm. if you think about there's other emerging market ETFs that are more pure play, uh, IEM, VGED immediately come to mind, FEMEX, FEMX. Um, I don't mind this one. I do prefer though IAA, which is the BlackRock or iShares Concentrated Top 50 Asia ETF. It's performed better. This one has 1,427 companies in it, so it's sort of VGAD-esque. Um, main holdings are Tencent, Alibaba, Taiwan Semiconductor, Samsung. And over the last five years, it's returned about 11.5% per annum. So it's certainly nothing shabby. Hmm. but. Uh, I, my preference, I'd probably do VGE, which is the event. If I'm looking for emerging, 
Um, then that's the Vanguard Emerging Countries ETF. And if I'm looking for more of that Asian bent, IAA, which as I said, sort of knocks out 1,370 something companies and just gives you the top 50. So more okay. bang for your buck. So I'll, I'll pop, pop you down as a no for that one. Uh, Michael, what do you think? We own this one. Um, and again, it just gives you that plain vanilla exposure to Asia, excluding Japan. And Japan's sort of big and, and bad enough and ugly enough and mature enough to stand on its own two feet. And, and looking at the performance of the Japanese stock market over the last 30 years, you probably don't want that in many ways included into your portfolio. I think Japan's very much sort of a stock picker's market. So for us, this is just a plain vanilla way to get exposure to China. You get actually a fair bit of India in this compared to a lot of other ETFs out there. So that's the thought process behind it. But again, it's pretty niche holding for us. It's not like we hold this across all our portfolios, but for clients that want some Asian exposure, uh, this is a, a good avenue to go down. It's got some of those good quality names in there, but it is very, very diversified. Again, mm-hmm. it's got over a thousand different holdings. So you're just going to get a pretty smoothed out return uh, of those different markets. Okay. Okay. So uh, some excellent thoughts. Let's do a quick recap. So we started off with the BetaShares Global Banks ETF. The guys both like this. They like the sector. They think that there is potential for higher interest rates. That's probably going to be good for banks. And so for that, uh, it got a two thumbs up, which means we're going to add it to the calls portfolio uh, today. Um, Speaking of the portfolio, we already had the BetaShares Global Energy ETF. This is a currency hedged one. I forgot to mention the code. It's another great code, FUEL, F-U-E-L. That was sent in by Sam. Uh, And the guys like this. They like the space. Uh, They like this. uh, we even got a free stock pick out of uh, Michael there, Santos, for those who like to, to do more direct approach. But yes, that is uh, that is in the portfolio. Then we got to the BetaShares S&P 500 yield maximizer, doing some clever things with options to boost that yield up from very low levels in the US to so about 7% at this point in time. The gents making some excellent points, though, that total return is something that you don't want to ignore. And on a total return basis, it has really lagged the S&P 500. Uh, in fact, Andrew said it was his least favorite ETF of today's session. So two thumbs down there. Uh, we then went to uh, real estate and the Dow Jones uh, Global Real Estate ETF, DJRE was the code. We got a yes from Andrew. It is a what he would consider a core portfolio. ETF in their uh, holdings, uh, 31% industrials. He does make mention of the fact that the five years hasn't been fantastic. And for Michael, uh, just you know, not, not that sexy. So uh, it was a pass from him. And then we ended off with the Vanguard FTSE Asia Fund, excluding Japan. Look, this is basically China and India. This is an emerging markets kind of fund. It has some really interesting companies in it, such as Tencent, Alibaba, uh, as was mentioned before. So for Andrew, it was a no on the basis that he has other ETFs that he prefers in that space. IAA from BlackRock and VGE being uh, his preferred ones. But for Michael, uh, he likes this. In fact, these guys have got it uh, in the portfolio as we speak. So that is it. That is our ETF special number two. I hope you have enjoyed it. Uh, It's been good to add some extra stocks to our portfolio. As I said, jump onto the website if you want to check out what we're doing there. But uh, that was a really interesting chat. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us. No, thanks. It's good to be back. Hope we took the uh, the brain through its paces today. Yeah, I took the edge off, so I'll be back in fine form. Back in fine Well, mate, you, you hit the ground running. <laughs> it was fantastic. And uh, a man who's always on point, Andrew Weiland from DP Wealth Advisory. Great to chat, and thanks for your insights. Andrew, Michael, we survived. Well done. <laughs> Worldwide. We-
We, did, we, we made it. Um, and of course, thank you to our viewers there at home. Remember, uh, we love to get your suggestions. So we've, we'll do an ETF down the track, I'm sure. So feel free to send some of those through. But if you want any uh, ASX listed, fully paid ordinary shares, that's what we really love here as well. So make sure you contact us on Twitter. The handle there is at TV. Or if you prefer, you can go the old fashioned way with email. The address there is the call at osbiz.com.au. Well, we will be back same bat time, same bat channel tomorrow, and I look forward to your company then. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.